0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we learn how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did it. I'm Charlotte Northworthy. On this episode of The Lead, I talk with Jonathan Peters, a professor at the University of Georgia Grady College of Journalism, as well as the School of Law. He got his journalism degree from Ohio University, his law degree from Ohio State, and his Ph.D. in journalism from the University of Missouri. When he's not teaching communication law at UGA, he serves as a correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review, covering topics like the First Amendment and press freedoms. In this episode, we discuss media ethics, and we re-examine journalistic values in today's changing landscape. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was created by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership as a part of its Innovation Fellowship program. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Dr. Peters is here with us. Before we get into all of the exciting things that we're going to talk about, I want to hear a little bit about your background because I think it's super fascinating. You have a law degree and a doctorate in journalism. What motivated you to seek out those degrees back to back?
1: Mainly masochism. Uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. And so I did get my JD first. I got my PhD at the University of Missouri after that and taught at the University of Kansas before I came to the University of Georgia. Uh, I teach media law. um, I write about media law. I do practice a little bit. Most of it now is pro bono cases in which I'm representing, uh, clients, a lot of them students, student journalists who otherwise would not be able to afford, uh, counsel. And I write for the Columbia Journalism Review about First Amendment and press freedom cases. Um, I'm a pretty regular commentator on other media law issues for the Washington Post or NPR, where they have me on to, to comment on this or that, um, and then beyond that, most importantly, um, I have a dog at home who's delightful. His name is Brooks, um, a lovely girlfriend who permits me to stay with her and live with her, which is honestly beyond my comprehension, why anybody would want that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, and you know, I've been at Grady for a year. This is, I guess, a year and a month now.
0: Well, congratulations. To start us off... I wanna talk a little bit about standards. We're taught a lot as journalism students about standards and ethics and upholding to a certain priority as a journalist. And there's plenty of standards out there, either produced by larger news organizations or journalism societies like the Society of Professional Journalists, for example. And as you know, these standards seek to establish guidelines or priorities for journalists to follow in the reporting process, in the news gathering process, like fairness, truth, accuracy, objectivity, minimizing harm even. Do you think that there are any new standards or any new priorities that journalists should focus on nowadays? Does it does anything need to be reexamined?
1: I think the threshold that we should acknowledge is that in journalism, nothing is possible without trust and without press freedom. Ethical lapses erode public trust in journalism that makes it harder for journalists to earn the trust of sources that they need to perform their democratic roles. And so raising the level of trust in the press is a way of ensuring not only press freedom, but the quality journalism that press freedom enables. I think that is the threshold starting point when you talk about ethics and and professional standards. Are standards today adequate? Um, I think it would depend on whose standards we're thinking about. I think that whether we're talking about organizational standards like those of the Associated Press or the New York Times, or if we're talking about standards that purport to be industry-wide, like those of the Society of Professional Journalists and its Code of Ethics, I think that they uh, are and should be subject to continuous uh, scrutiny and revision. I think that many of the principles that we've had for decades, uh, are as true today as they were 50 or 75 years ago. You know, the idea that we ought to tell, you know, a truthful story boldly, the idea that we should minimize harm to, you know, those affected by a reporting, and that could be subjects or sources or both. Um, I think that those have, um, you know, a certain, um, greenness to them, that they would apply, you know, whatever medium we're using to tell stories and whatever the media economy would look like.
0: It seems as though I can't get through a single day without getting a notification on my phone or seeing a headline go across my news feed, reading that the media is being doubted in some way or that there's a significant level of distrust or some head of state is attacking the media in some way. Where do you foresee trust in the media going from the point that we are currently? Are things looking good for us or are things looking pretty bleak?
1: (laughs) Things are not great. Um, This is not a new problem. For decades, um, public opinion polling around trust in the press has shown a decline. It is uh, both a decline in trust um, in, in the press as an institution and in the work product of the press. That is occurring simultaneously with an overall decline in public trust in institutions generally. And that would include you know, religious, political, governmental, um, sociological institutions that, that you know, at least previously, had had some import in American democracy. The rhetoric today certainly doesn't help. Uh, the anti, the vehemently anti-press rhetoric out of the Trump administration, um, I think, has contributed to a culture in which it is easier and more palatable for some to demonize individual journalists and the work of the press uh, and to marginalize the press's role as an institution in democracy. Um, That is not only um, conceptually, democratically unhealthy, but I worry uh, could put, and perhaps already has put, journalists' physical safety in jeopardy. Um, Where are we going in the future? I'm not entirely certain. Um, This kind of rhetoric has its limits, though, because public opinion polling recently has shown that the vast majority of Americans still do respect uh, press freedom and do not support governmental intervention in the press. And so on the one hand, we have a public that seems you know, comfortable with its lack of trust and declining trust in the press, but on the other hand is not comfortable with a solution that would involve governmental intervention or restrictions on press freedom.
0: You sort of hinted a little bit at journalists and their protection when deciding to use things like anonymous sourcing or publishing, you know, private documents that journalists are, you know, typically and have traditionally used in in pushing things that are important. What are some things that journalists can do to protect themselves as they're approaching a story that may be risky?
1: I think there's at least a twofold risk that you have to manage. One of them is in today's media environment, Thinking of the way that we produce journalism, the way that we gather information, the way that we communicate with one another in newsrooms, the way that we communicate with sources outside of newsrooms, there is a technological risk in the way that we do it if what we have promised is confidentiality to a source. Um, There is also a corresponding legal risk. And So I think you, you first have to bifurcate the two and treat each of them separately, but as first cousins. That if you do one and not the other, you've you've, you've left yourself exposed. Um, Another way of thinking about this is that um, your home security is only as good as the weakest lock you have in your house. So here, if I spend all of my time thinking about the legal protections for my source in the event that I would receive a subpoena trying to compel me to reveal my confidential source, while at the same time I've communicated with the source in unsecure ways, uh, I have not used basic security protocols on the devices that I've used to communicate with him or her, then I've left my back door open for the government or some other interested party to come in and you know, extra-legally discover, oh, you know, he's been talking to Bob. For the rest of us who are not the New York Times and who may not be reporting on the NSA and the Department of Defense every day, but, but those of us who report on uh, a city council or on a state government, uh, there are risks, but they are not the same risks, at least with regard to the order of magnitude. One of the early decisions you have to make is, what is the nature of my risk? What is the probability that the risk will materialize? And then what are the most effective and efficient ways of preventing against those risks? And in that respect, cybersecurity is a little bit like buying insurance. You have to calculate the risk before you figure out what plan is best for you. Uh, Once you have battened down all of those hatches and protected yourself against technological risks, then it's a good idea to talk with a media lawyer about the degree of confidence you can have when you make a promise of confidentiality to a source. I also want to overlay this with ethics. Um, I think that journalists should generally be wary of using confidential sources in the first place. Um, Research has shown that for the most part, audiences uh, have a greater level of trust in stories if the sources are explicitly disclosed because it allows the audience to make credibility judgments about the information itself when you can see its source and what motives or ulterior motives that source might have in saying what he or she did or in providing the information at all.
0: You teach hundreds of students a year about this relationship between the government and journalists, either through First Amendment freedoms, Mm -hmm. privacy rights, or the classic examples of, you know, libel, slander, obscenity. What is one piece of advice that you would offer to students such as myself, or journalists at any level for that matter, when facing a difficult job market in a changing landscape, what would you say to those people?
1: I am asked that regularly. Um, and it normally comes from high achieving students who are concerned that they don't have their entire life mapped out in front of them. And I always tell them that at, you know, when I was your age, at 21 or 22, uh, the one thing in the world that I swore I would never do was teach, and here I am, and I love it. I can't imagine having a better job than the one that I have. And the reason I said I didn't want to teach, by the way, it's because it is the family business. Everybody in my family teaches: my mom, my dad, my aunts, my uncles. And I thought it would be cliched to do that too. So there are no lawyers in the family. I thought this will make me a special unicorn in the family. And so I go off to law school and it didn't take me long before I realized I wanted to teach law. And so I went back hat in hand to family and said, I think I actually do want to join the family business. How do I go about this? And then the rest is history. Um, so I always, I always tell them that in part to comfort them that, you know, whatever you think you do or want don't want to do right now, that may well change. It could change in 3, 5, 10, 15 years. Some of the most interesting people I know are halfway into their careers and still have no idea what they want to do when they grow up. And there is no harm, you know, no cosmic harm, I should say, to changing your mind. If you get into something and you decide that you don't like it, then find a way out. Um, and yes, in the short run, it may cause complications. It may create other challenges where... You have to figure out how seamlessly to get from one job or career to another job or career. Um, but uh, at, at any rate, I think that you know I I I've met with a number of students who have said after looking around the proverbial classroom that everyone else seems to have it all figured out. And what most of those students don't know is that the students that they are looking at as those with it figured out were in my office last week, saying, "I don't know," and you know she has she knows everything, and I want to be more like her. So I think a big part of this is taking a step back, taking a deep breath and realizing that you're probably fine and there's no need to script this out at your age. You know, be open to change uh, when you go forward. And um, I, I also tell all of my classes that I am excited for them because you know, there has never been a more interesting time to go into journalism uh, or into the mass media for my students who are on the StratCom side of of the sheet and the value of a, of an education in mass communication or journalism it has not declined it may have changed but think about a journalism or mass comm education this way it trains you no more to be only a journalist or a mass communicator than a history degree or political science degree trains you only to be a historian or a political scientist you know what we do in journalism and mass comm programs is we help you develop a set of skills that you can apply toward a variety of ends, to create a nonprofit, to go on to med school, to like I did, to go on to law school. Um or you know obviously you could go into the you know the, the industries for which we're training you uh more specifically. And so you know a lot of what we do is is teach you how to think critically, how to analyze information, how to present it clearly and concisely. Um, and one through line in all of this that has not changed, even as the media around us do, and the way that we tell stories is what is important at a practical level to employers. Um, employers want to hire people who are responsible, who are reliable, and who are able to tell a good story well. And that is true, whether you are selling a product or trying to get somebody interested in you know, this person who lives down the street that would make a fascinating human interest profile. Um, It is telling a good story well. And therefore, I tell all of my students, take the time that you need to become a good writer, a good writer and a good thoughtful editor.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Peters. Thanks for coming on the show. This was amazing. I appreciate your time.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Northworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director at the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Be sure to tune in to our next episode where I talk to Tracy Brown, the deputy managing editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about how newsrooms can integrate audio storytelling into their coverage. Until next time.